Welcome to a special bonus episode of Public Power Underground. Public Power Underground is Public Power's premier infotainment program that covers public power and public power adjacent news from a power department's perspective. I'm Paul Dockery, the creative director of Public Power Underground and manager of the power department for Klotzkin IPUD. In this bonus episode, Matthew Shretnik, Humira Falkenberg, and I talk to Jesse Jenkins about electric utilities role in the energy transition, especially public power. We also play a dorky intermission game called Parametric Uncertainty or Structural Air, and hear Jesse's thoughts on a wide variety of electric utility topics. Matt and Humira are regular contributors to Public Power Underground, but in case you aren't familiar with our podcast, I'm going to give you a brief introduction. Matt is the Power Planning Supervisor and Staff Counsel for Eugene Water and Electric Board normally shortened to eWeb. eWeb is a water and electric utility that serves the community of Eugene, Oregon. Humira Falkenberg is the power manager for public utility district number two of Pacific County. Pacific County PUD is a customer-owned utility providing electricity, water, and wholesale telecommunications services in Pacific County, Washington, located on Washington's southern coastline. Before we transition to the conversation with Jesse, a word from our presenting sponsor, The presenting sponsor of Public Power Underground is The Energy Authority. The Energy Authority is a nonprofit energy portfolio management company owned by public power entities like us. TEA's mission is to help clients maximize the value of their assets and meet their power supply goals. TEA does this by providing expertise in energy training and advanced analytics, renewable solutions, and a whole lot more. Over 60 public power utilities have partnered with TEA to tackle their energy future. So if you are looking for an energy authority to partner with in navigating the uncertain future of our industry, visit teainc.org. That's T-E-A-I-N-C.org. The energy authority, there is underground as it gets. All right. Uh, So today, Humaira, Paul and I are joined by Jesse Jenkins to talk about electric utilities, specifically public power's role in the energy transition. Uh, Jesse Jenkins rocketed to stardom while he was still at the University of Oregon with the blog Wathead. Uh, Later, he became geeky famous on energy Twitter, uh, excuse me, hashtag energy Twitter, uh, and more recently finds himself a full-on celebrity after appearing on Jon Stewart's HBO series The Problem with Jon Stewart as part of a panel discussing climate change. Jesse leads the Princeton Zero Lab, which the zero is short for the zero carbon. So the Z and zero carbon energy, capital E, energy systems, research, capital R and capital O optimization laboratory, zero carbon energy systems, research, optimization laboratory. Great short in there. Uh, The Zero Lab, which focuses on improving and applying optimization based energy system models to evaluate low carbon energy technologies and generate insights to guide policy and planning decisions in national and subnational jurisdictions transitioning to net zero emissions energy systems. I did it. I did it. I read the blurb. <laughs> wow, Paul. Yeah, way to go on that. Um, well, you know, Jesse and I have history too. Um, he and I were classmates a long time ago. Um, we first met during Jeff Hammerlin's Northwest Energy Policy course at uh, Portland State University. And we also attended the National uh, Energy Policy course in Washington, D.C. some uh, 15 years ago. Um, Jesse was then working at Renewable Northwest. 
Um, and Paul, did you know that I was an avid commenter and a follower of Jesse's blogs, uh, Wathead? Uh, I believe it. You know, both seem like energy nerds. Like you're my people. Like really deep yeah. energy nerds. nerds of well, the you world. and I can. Wattheads unite. Yeah, <laughs> Wattheads unite. Enthusiasts. <laughs> I thought we, I thought we went with enthusiasts. Yeah. <laughs> That's right, Matt. Enthusiasts. And even then, actually, Jesse was um, committed to advancing clean energy transition. And uh, subsequently, Jesse went on to get his PhD at MIT. So what a blast from the past, Jesse. Welcome. Yeah, it's a pleasure to be here. Yeah, um, great to talk to you all and uh, and fun if I can't be there in person to at least be talking to folks from the Northwest uh, as a native Oregonian. It's uh, it's awesome to touch base and to talk about the energy transition again. We, we are super excited to have you. Um, probably should have covered this earlier, Dr. Jenkins. Uh, can we call you Jesse? Yes, please. All right. All right. Great. Thank you. Uh, the undergraduates to have to power? call me Professor Jenkins. Oh, there you go. Yeah. That, that's my father, right? Yeah. Um, but uh, yeah, welcome to Public Power Underground. Thanks so much for joining us today. Thanks. Should be fun. It should it be. be. We I, hope it is. Uh, yeah. We try to be the friendliest interview in Public Power. That's our goal. So hopefully, usually we don't have, we, we're kind of ganging up on you today. We got a lot of, a lot of questions. Yeah. But Jesse, you're a bit of a celebrity in our small messaging group. Uh, often we uh, bring up things that you put on energy Twitter and we uh, uh, public power enthusiasts uh, share amongst our small group. Um, so, but Jesse, um, so we are, you know, electric utility enthusiasts and public power advocates. Um, our hypothesis is that electric utilities have a big role to play in energy transition. And Jesse, since you work on macro scale energy systems and public policy, you know, we want to hear your thoughts on the role of public power, uh, more specifically, you know, the role that public power can play in energy transition or um, decarbonization. So yeah, great. Yeah. Great question. And uh, I think basically the electricity sector uh, as a whole and then public power specifically in the areas where uh, you're the primary you know, provider of power are, at, I always say, a linchpin in our efforts to decarbonize the overall economy. You know, the linchpin isn't the whole thing. You take the linchpin out of the wheel, it falls apart. That's the metaphor. I had to look that one up because who's seen a wagon wheel recently? Um, but that's the idea, right? It's or the keystone in the arch, whatever you want to call it. Um, basically, every study that we've done and that I've seen in the field of how we can get the economy as a whole to low levels of greenhouse gas emissions, ultimately to net zero, which is where all of our human caused emissions, whatever remains at that point is perfectly offset by negative emissions where we're taking carbon dioxide out of the atmosphere and storing it safely in equal quantities. Um, they all require, every net zero transition study requires the electricity sector to cut emissions faster and deeper than every other sector of the economy. Um, and so it has this, you know, massive pace challenge. Uh, we got to move quickly to decarbonize electricity. Um, you can see that in President Biden's goals for the country, right? We need to cut emissions in half from peak levels by 2030. But he's also talking about by 2035 going all the way to 100% carbon free electricity, right? I think that's a stretch goal, but you know, it gives you a sense of the pace at which we might want to be able to transition in electricity versus the overall economy. Um, and 
the uh, challenge in electricity is, is twofold because we not only have to cut emissions from power, which is you know roughly 30% of our overall greenhouse gas emissions, so can't get there to net zero without eliminating that, but the electricity sector is also expected to probably double or more in total supply to help decarbonize electricity, uh, I mean, sorry, to, to help electrify and decarbonize transportation and heating and parts of industry to produce hydrogen. Um, and so, you know, maybe two thirds of the overall challenge is effectively reducing electricity sector emissions and dramatically expanding clean electricity supply to decarbonize fossil dependent uh, sectors that don't currently use electricity. So yeah. you mentioned like this linchpin concept a little bit, and I, I don't know, maybe you can just help me out in my self-consciousness, but on, when I'm on energy Twitter, it seems like there's a lot of electric utility skeptics out there. Is it just me reading into it because I work for an electric utility? And how do I, uh, how do I help us be uh, seen as important? How do we actually help the innovation instead of being perceived as like this block to innovation? Yeah, I think I think that there is a fair amount of skepticism and that I think comes from the role of advocates and change makers and trying to push things forward faster and faster. Right. And electric utilities play a critical public function. Right. And providing reliable, uh, you know, constant electricity supply to, to all of our modern needs. And I think by that nature are a bit more conservative than advocates of, you know, climate policy or, or the like. And so, you know, that creates, I think, a, you know, productive tension, right? I saw this in my days at Renewable Northwest where I was on the side pushing a little bit faster. Um, but with a lot of, you know, well-intentioned, smart folks on the power, you know, the public power, I mean, on the, uh, the utility side, um, you know, wanting to chart the same path, but being focused on a whole set of other priorities as well. So I think there's a tension there and I think it leads to some frustration. Why can't we just do this faster? It's a, you know, it is a global crisis. So, you know, you can understand the strong emotions and the motivations to, to try to cut greenhouse gas emissions, to reduce pollution from fossil fuels as quickly as possible. And when you have a utility, you know, person come in and say, well, actually it's a bit more complicated than that. We have to do it out of, you know, people can start to get frustrated. And so there's a bit of that, which I think is unavoidable and probably productive as well. There's also the challenge, and this varies from utility to utility tremendously, um, that you know some utilities are trying to preserve the value of their incumbent investments, right. right? I mean, that's their economic base. They've invested for decades in building out this energy system, and they're going to try to get as much value out of that as they can. And if that means holding on to fossil power plants longer, you know, burning using coal after it's you know really should be retired, you know, those kinds of things are in the financial interest of a lot of utilities. And so they're also going to push back against this pace of change that we might need from a public perspective. And, you know, and that, again, varies very much from utility to utility. And, and over time, as those assets get, you know, bought down and, and, and amortized, that transition gets easier. So, you know, I see the electricity sector as in the long term, a sector that can fundamentally thrive and be part of a zero carbon system. Like I said, it could double market share, right? That's a huge yes. opportunity for utilities. It's great. Um, but in the near term, we have these tensions, right? How quickly can we go? How quickly can we leave our existing assets behind? Um, and that's where advocacy and public policy, I think, have to get in there and, and accelerate things and make it make good financial sense for utilities to make it good, make good reliability sense for utilities um, to move faster towards a cleaner energy system. 
one of the things Matt and I talk actually a lot about with people that come on and Matt, you can interject here too, is, is the value and the importance of the people and recruiting people who have the same enthusiasm yeah. for this electrification, recruiting them into the electric utility industry, because the more passionate people and, and brilliant people like you, we have in within our sector, the faster and more innovative we can be and clever we can uh, be in solutions. That's and so totally right. Help me pitch the people. Help me pitch <laughs> young professionals coming out of Princeton to join public power as an electric utility. Uh, uh, well, yeah, nerd. no, I think, I mean, I think your take is exactly right. And I've seen this, you know, and who we engage with at different utilities over time, right? It, you know, if, if you're, you've been doing this for 40 years, right? You might think this is the way we always do it. And, you know, there's, there's not a lot of incentive to change. It's worked just fine. You know, if you come in and you say, look, we've got a, a sector that's in fundamental transition right now, and that's exciting. And I want to go to work every day and try to solve those problems and make that change. Like there's just different mindsets. And so I do think there's a generational shift. It doesn't have to be generational. I don't want to no, say yeah, everybody who's in the sector that's been doing this for 40 years can't also get on board, but um, it's definitely easier for people who are coming in with a different mindset. You know, personnel is policy, right? And you see this yes. in business. You see oh, this that's in, a great in government. Quote. Can we use that quote? Yeah, you can. it's not mine originally. Policy. You can. Okay. That comes out of the, the Washington, D.C. world where, you know, the focus on who, you know, who the White House and, you know, administration staffs in these key positions is almost as important as what executive orders or what policies they're pushing in, in, in the legislature, right? Because personnel's policy, you know, like who's in charge of the Department of Energy's uh, R&D office, who's in charge of the loan program office, right? You know, Jigger Shaw's over there, uh, you know, kicking butt, trying to make that agency do as much, you know, as it can, right? And that's totally different than previous uh, eras. So, yeah, so I think we need, we need a, you know, a generation that's excited about transforming the electricity sector. I mean, my pitch to folks would be, look, this is a pit, you know, it's a pivotal sector in the clean energy transition. So if you're motivated by that, you know, there are, you could work on a few other areas that are just as important, but this is, you know, this is central to the transition and the challenges are huge. So if you like solving important challenges that matter to society, there's a few options that are better than, you know, working in the electricity sector. That's why I get up every day and focus on this and I've been doing it for 15 years, you know, there's always exciting new problems to solve and they matter, right? They're not just, you know, something you have to figure out because your business needs it. You have to figure it out because society needs you to solve the problem. I think so there's also a pitch here. <laughs> yeah, me too. I think there's also a pitch there on public power. Matt, do you want to give them the public power specific electric utility pitch or did you have another angle you wanted to take us at, Matt? No, that was, I, I think that is the direction I want to go. I don't, did I, did I misplace my pitch? I didn't know that I had one. Well, uh, I mean, I, I, I we all got to have a pitch in our back pocket. <laughs> we got to be ready. I mean, I wasn't very specific about public versus private, but I mean, so, you know, you're at EWEB, right? So I was, yeah. I lived in, in Eugene for, for four years at the University of Oregon. And, you know, we engaged when I was a student, you know, some of my first sense of how to make change actually came as a student activist um, trying to get the University of Oregon to transition faster to cleaner energy. We ran a campaign to um, raise our own student fees, right, through a ballot initiative for a you know, referendum on campus to cover the cost of purchasing renewable energy credits via eWeb to, you know, wipe, to, to net out the rest of the power use on campus. Um, students were overwhelmingly in favor of that, but if the utility on the other end wasn't interested in partnering with us, then there's not really anywhere to go, right? I mean, you've got real, real limits there. And so the fact that we could turn to a publicly owned local utility that had a very similar mindset, because you're responsive to the, you know, your customers and your, um, your uh, local, you know, population, that made that transition so much 
easier, right? So when customers have a direction they want to go and the utility is responsive to that because the customers are the owners, I do think that makes a big difference. And, you know, I, I hear a lot of complaints from some advocates, again, about certain public utilities, right, that are in more conservative areas being some of the most stalwart opponents to this change. And again, I kind of have to explain like, well, they're the most democratically representative of utilities, right? And so where the population is not all that interested in that change, they are going to reflect that. And, and so again, the key is to make, you know, make the case with the public in those areas, you know, the benefits of transition. Mm -hmm. um, and, and if you do that, then the utility will, will also see the benefits as well because they're very responsive. So that's been my experience. I mean, just like private utilities, you get a whole range of different views as to where the company should be going. Um, but whereas the private utilities are more responsive to their shareholders and maybe the regulators that set their rates, the, you know, the public utilities are, are far more responsive to their, their customer base in my experience. So local control, one of the things I love about it, but that's a, that's a double-edged sword too, for the same point yeah, that exactly. you just made. Um, we're seeing that now in uh, um, Tennessee, shall we say. Yeah. Um, with a certain large federal agency down there and their gas plans. Yep. Um, but we're not here to talk about that. Um, <laughs> um, uh, looking to be respectful of everyone's time, Jesse, we're going to take a, a quick break here, but uh, are you willing to, to stick around and chat more after an intermission? Of course, happy to. Excellent. Thank you very much, sir. Okay, Jesse. Uh, typically, there's a tradition here with some guests that I do an intermission yeah. game. Okay. Right. And when this is the first one that I had to do research on before I was able to actually understand what we we're talking about. A little embarrassed to admit that one, but let's just start there. I mean, we should, yeah, I assumed you did research for the John Harrison interview intermission game too, but I guess not. Who knows? You know? Um, so it, it, as I was coming up with this game, I, I actually was prepping, I was listening to some podcasts, doing my research on you, Jesse. And I learned you're a philosophy major. Is that correct? That's Is that right. right Justin? Yeah, philosophy right. and computer science dual major at the University of Oregon. Yep. Okay. Part of my advocacy is also trying to get utilities to hire more philosophy majors. I think they make great, great employees. Matt and I actually are both. Uh, also, they're all majors. out of work, so you should definitely hire more of them. No. Right. You can find them <laughs> unless they're lawyers, right? A lot of philosophy majors yes. end up as lawyers yeah, like right. Matt. That's true. Right? Like Matt. Yeah. Um, I was yeah, not, not like Paul, uh, Hugh Myra, I think is an actual philosopher. She is a lover of wisdom. So that also went into this game. That's true. Right. Hugh Myra, you're All a right. lover of wisdom in the truest sense of being a philosopher. I love wisdom. Exactly. Who's going to say no to that? Who's going to say no to that? So, um, I had my, one of my favorite philosophy courses in college was, um, by Ralph McInerney, who is a Thomist. He, it was a course on, uh, Aristotle and Thomas Aquinas. And he imprinted this theory on me that theater, uh, that, that television, that, that art it is actually a model of human behavior. And um, it, 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 you had an interview with the, the uh, David Roberts from Vol and talking about different models uh, and how they're a simplification and an abstraction that can teach us uh, by being like an approximate, approximation yeah. of the real world for lack of a better word. So I came up with the game, I'm calling it parametric uncertainty or structural error. So I'm going to give you some of the cringe moments in pop culture television. And I want you to tell me whether they are a result of parametric or structural error. Did that make any sense? You ready for this? Yeah, no, I, I mean, as a modeler, that makes total sense. So parametric error being uncertainty about the state of the world and the future 
future, right? Often we don't know exactly what the future is going to look like, so we guess wrong. And structural error being problems in the simplification in your model, right? How you choose to represent the rest of the world didn't quite work out, right? Um, so yes. yeah, common errors in both, uh, I assume, art and energy system modeling. So take it away. That's the hypothesis. We're gonna we're gonna see how if this actually works as a game, and if it doesn't, <laughs> you know what? We can cut it. It's fine. It's okay. So my first one: parametric error or structural error? Okay. The cringe scene from the classic Gen X television show Friends, when Rachel breaks up with Ross and Ross has a one night stand only to have Rachel return the next day. Okay, classic cringe moment. Was that a error by Ross, a, a structural error or a parametric error? Yeah, that one's tough without knowing what's going on inside Ross's mind, but I think it could be either. In some cases, the easy answer is it was a parametric error. He thought he was actually, they were really breaking up and that Rachel would never come back. But it might also have been a, a structural error about his model of what being on a break actually means and what he was allowed to do or not do. <laughs> so uh, yeah, his mental model of, uh, of what the breakup meant could also have been flawed. Um, so, so yeah, my it, read is this is a structural error. His, his like structure yeah. of what a, uh, like, the structure of what a woman, what a woman is, that model was broken. I That's think. true. Okay, <laughs> yeah. I didn't understand it. Yep, I, I ain't touching that one. Yep. <laughs> Why is that? <laughs> okay, and next one up. Okay, you got the right. I didn't bring my soundboard, but in the room, imagine actually in the edit there'll be a ding because I'm gonna put that in later. <laughs> I, I forgot to bring Perfect. up my soundboard, so imagine a ding. Okay. Uh, in season two, episode 15 of Parks and Rec, Ann Perkins hosts a public meeting for Pawnee residents to ask que her questions regarding the dangers of Sweetums Nutra Yums bars. It does not go well, which actually was surprising to Ann. So the question is that it was surprising to Ann? Was that uh, a, an error in her, was that a parametric error in her view of the world or a structural error in her model of how public meetings go? <laughs> so I'm going to go with a parametric error on this one because she should know, having experienced many a public meeting, uh, how unruly the, the crowd could be. So I'm going to guess that she did not anticipate, so this is uncertainty in her parametric assumptions, the response from the crowd. Um, so I'll go with parametric on this one. Okay, I'm learning something here. With, with that definition, with, with that explanation, I agree. I agree with Jesse on this. Paul and I talked about this. You're just learning. I'm previous. a good philosopher. I can argue either side of this and, a, uh, and make I, a definitional I, case, right? Could, the answer no is always answer. it depends. Absolutely. Yes. And you know what I respect, Jesse, is you're 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 giving the exposition of the answers, which I think is what your undergrads are learning too. Like you have yeah, to give right. your answer, but then back it up, right? I, we literally have. That's how we do true false assignments in my class. Is you, you do true false, but then you actually have to explain your answer, and half the half the score is. Did you actually explain it right? Because, you know, otherwise you got a 50-50 chance of being right and you just flip a coin. That's Not a lot perfect. of value in that. You know, that I can do. If it, it show your work, that's a different story altogether. Yeah. But I can justify it all day. Yeah. <laughs> okay, I have another classic moment, okay? In season one, episode eight of Ted Lasso, one of the favorite shows of Public Power Underground listeners and, and viewers. Everyone. Uh, Rebecca's <laughs> ex-husband, Rupert, disrespects her in front of Ted. The coach, uh, Ted, intervenes and calmly challenges Rupert, the ex, to a game of darts. Did Rupert make a parametric error or a structural error by accepting Ted's challenge? 
Yeah, so again, you could argue either way on this one, but I think I'm going to go with structural error because I think that Rupert has a self-inflated model of his role in the world and or of Ted and what, you know, what Ted's capable of. So I think, you know, I think he would repeat this error in many, many contexts. It's not just about underestimating uh, uh, Ted. I think he just has a... Uh, an inflated view of himself and, and his role in the world as his mental model for everything because he's so used to succeeding. Yeah, I mean, you did a great job of justifying your answer, but I'm uh, <laughs> I'm I'm here to say you're wrong. I mean, <laughs> Princeton professors can also be wrong. We can That's also something we should all know. But I yeah. get half uh, points for 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 writing down my work. Half points for so. a great answer. It yeah. was it was clearly a parametric error because Ted had been throwing the darts with his right hand, uh, and then at yeah, the moment he was that. like, "Oh, yes. I forgot, I'm left-handed." That's, That's clearly true. a parametric error. He did not know that's that he true. Was yes. Throwing his... Okay. Because right. he was judgmental, yeah. not curious. Yeah. Yes, he was. Curious. And you know, yes, exactly. I missed that nuance. Yeah, I, I, I forgot right that piece. Yeah. yeah. So maybe it's a bit of both. I don't know. See, I think... yeah, no, no, I got the nuance. I still like Jesse's answer better. <laughs> I mean, it was a fine answer. He's still getting it wrong. He's going to get it at most. Okay, so it's it, at it, least get a B four. plus. <laughs> You're going to get a B plus. That's probably it. So it's all right. Okay. I got the last one. You ready? Right. Matt has not watched Succession yet. Humira, have you watched Succession? No. No. Jesse, have I, you watched I Succession have. yet? Yes, okay. definitely. <laughs> okay. So uh, no spoilers. Uh, I'm going to try to frame this in a way that doesn't have spoilers. Um, in Succession, are the Roy children continuously failing because of parametric errors or structural errors in their model of Logan Roy's behavior? Again, I think I'm going to go with structural errors. I think that they they just don't have a very good mental model of how the world works, um, and that's why they well, then they're just terrible people. That's that's why they fail, they keep failing. Um, but again, you could argue the way around. Logan exceeds at, at surprising people, right? So he he doesn't like to be uh, pinned down and and uh, easily understood. But I think I'm going to go with structural error because this is all of the children routinely get this stuff wrong i think it, it reflects them. their worldview I, I so obviously you're going to get this one right because it's the last question you got to get right but <laughs> so there's going to be a ding imagine the ding i was also thinking is the parametric error there that they all think that he loves them and that's just wrong that's well just that wrong, could again right? also is, be a structural error <laughs> oh is that a right structural well it depends yeah. right I, I guess yeah i don't know yeah it could I, be a parametric I, I was, thinking, that I was thinking of that as a parametric error. They were thinking there's it's a belief input. that is wrong. It's a belief yeah. that's wrong, right? It's an yeah. input that's wrong. So it's yep. so uh, we yeah, both got great. that one right. I think that I think right. that answer may be both. It's both they don't know how the world works and they think they love him. Yeah, or he he yeah. loves them. There we go. Against so this this is another first for me in that I had to do research before the game and now I'm going to have to do research again after the game. You so watch at some that. point you're going to have to watch Succession, Matt. That's really to keep there's no getting around it. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. You still yes. haven't watched Ted Lasso. <laughs> no, Humira has. You keep blaming her. You keep accusing her of terrible things, Matt. She's watched Ted Lasso. Uh, keep. When it... <laughs> Congratulations, <laughs> Jesse. You've run the there game. There we go. Yay. Yay. Congratulations. You've run the I game. very much the appreciate the effort that went into that. That was, uh, yeah. that was very well done. Okay. The first time I read it, I was terrified. The third time I read it, I had a really good time. Um, <laughs> that's so, so embarrassed that I asked you all those questions. But not I, at all. I, I think that was fantastic. Incredibly enlightening, actually. Okay, we're and, in, and, end of the and, intermission. End of intermission. Uh, but the fact that you engaged at that level and to that depth, uh, I think speaks well for you. Um, 
Yeah, that was that was a lot of fun. So thank you for that. Um, I'm not sure if I'm going to insert this before or after the intermission game. So either that was a great intermission game or just wait a minute and the intermission game is coming up. It's going to be lit. Um, but before we get there or before we get back to our interview, uh, another word from our sponsor, the Northwest Public Power Association. The Northwest Public Power Association believes in public power. For 82 years, NWPPA has supported public power utilities and other associates in the greater Pacific Northwest by offering education, training, communications, government relations, and services like RFP and job postings. In addition to public power, what else is important to NWPPA? Local control member needs, integrity, and quality products and services. Today, NWPPA proudly serves 155 member utilities and more than 325 utility industry associate members. Learn more or register for class at nwppa.org. That's nwppa.org. Believe in public power. Now back to the crew for some more or to close it out, or uh, to do an intermission game. One of those things is about to happen next, and you know which, and I don't. Uh, we, are, we are back. Um, hoping to uh, dig in with some, uh, some more substantive uh, questions at this point, if we could. Um, so I spent a lot of my time both advocating for electrification, um, electrify everything, everyone out there who is listening, uh, and also considering the impacts that that electrification is likely to have on my utility and my community. Um, and then also on the Northwest as a whole. Um, so with that in mind, um, I wanted to recall the comments that uh, Catherine Dixon made on the, uh, the episode of the problem with John Stewart that we referenced earlier, uh, the now famous episode that you were on, uh, where she noted that uh, roughly 80% of the energy use in this country is not electric um, and is not currently able to be electrified. Um, we're moving in that direction. And that's a huge chunk of our energy consumption overall. It includes end uses ranging from agricultural, um, commercial and industrial processes, and along with those that we tend to hear the most about, like transportation, um, heating, uh, and the like. Um, as you mentioned earlier, the stuff coming out of, uh, uh, well, the utility industry. Um, so I have, I have two questions here that I'm gonna try and wrap into one. Um, how much of that 80% or of that chunk can we expect to become electrified or to be eligible for electrification? Um, and for us, is a Northwest RTO necessary for us to get there? Ooh, that's a good question. Um, so yeah, it depends on how you slice this. If you're looking at primary energy inputs uh, or final energy inputs, depending on the fossil conversion. But yeah, I, so, our analyses of different pathways to get to net zero for the country as a whole in the net zero America study uh, see electricity demand as a whole more than doubling. Um, and uh, their final share of electricity um, growing to about 60% in a high electrification scenario, 50% uh, maybe with another 10%-ish from uh, hydrogen ultimately from electricity. Um, if electrification doesn't proceed as rapidly, um, then the share could be more like 35% or so. Um, the overall final energy demand also drops substantially if we electrify because a heat pump isn't creating energy, it's just moving it around. And so it is three, four, five times potentially more efficient 
um, unless it's really cold out uh, at heating your building then even in the most efficient uh, electric boiler or resistive heating. Uh, I remember living in uh, uh, rental apartments in, in Eugene and there was quite a lot of resistive heating there because of the low rates that eWeb has historically offered, right? So um, not the most efficient way to heat the house. And in an internal combustion engine, you lose four fifths of the energy uh, from the tank to the wheels of the car. Whereas an internal combustion engine, uh, or sorry, uh, an electric motor um, is, is more like you know, 85% uh, efficient, 80% um, efficient. And so we can get, you know, three or four times as much energy out of each electron in or each kilowatt hour in our gas, I mean, in our uh, battery, as you can um, a gallon of gasoline or this equivalent amount of energy in a gallon of gasoline. So we, we see total, uh, if in a high electrification scenario, we consume about 32% less energy overall in final energy services even as the economy is growing steadily through the next three decades. So reductions in total final and final energy demand, uh, large increases in energy services and the, you know, the strength of the economy. Um, some of that comes from efficiency, but about two thirds of that reduction comes either directly from electrification and those benefits that I just talked about and uh, from reductions in energy consumption and oil refining because we're not buying all that gasoline and diesel and refined products anymore. So it is just you know central to to getting the job done efficiently and um, and and cost effectively to really ramp up that share. So it, it's you know it it grows from twenty percent to maybe sixty percent of a smaller overall pie um, in the future. Now it's not everything, and like Catherine said, there are other sectors that we can't electrify. Um, but you know the first order of business is figure out what we can electrify, uh, get those on an ever increasing and growing grid, um, and we can knock out a good chunk of the problem that way. Yeah, thank you for hitting on that. Uh, uh, the efficiency gains that, you know, like an electric motor is just a more efficient, it's just more efficient yeah, at doing the efficient. work of transportation, right? Yep. And the heat pump is just, it's just a, a more efficient way of doing this work. So you can yeah. have, heat pumps are magic. do more. Yeah, work. they're magic, right? They create more energy than they use. Not really, they just move it around. But yeah, it's an incredible, uh, you know, you, you talk about something being 300% efficient, it sounds like magic. But, you know, and, and you see this in industry, which is which uses almost exclusively electric motors for this reason, right? Yeah. I mean, early industrialization was using internal combustion, you know, reciprocating diesel engines, but they all switch to electric motors because it's by far the most efficient way to go. I don't, I don't know, I've, I, I have a four year old kid, so I read a lot about trains. I'm not sure if you do. Uh, yeah. All the, the trains. diesel trains are using those diesel engines to produce electricity for electric traction motors because they're just that good, right? The only way you can move a giant freight train is with an electric motor. So yeah, the internal combustion engine on its way out, right? We're just gonna have better vehicles with um, electric you know, drivetrains. The other thing that's actually interesting is that for things, if we, in a low electrification scenario, if we have limited amounts of biomass that we can sustainably harvest, because that's one of the ways we can produce zero carbon fuel for things we can't electrify, if that's limited, then our low electrification scenarios that have less end use demand for electricity actually need more electricity generation. Anybody guess why? I'm the professor, so I gotta put you on the spot. So it has to do no with these idea. efficiency this questions. The Socratic method is just, yeah. I mean, I don't know. Why would so a low hard, electricity demand scenario have more uh, electricity generation needs? It's a great question, sense. Professor. Variability? I don't know the answer. Hydrogen. So oh, if we can't oh, electrify so the end uses, then we have to turn to hydrogen to a greater degree for industry, for displacing pipeline gas, for even transportation. And again, you lose a third of the electricity when you turn it into hydrogen, 
And uh, electric fuel cell, if you're using it for transportation, is, is only 50% efficient or 60% efficient as opposed to 80. Uh, so again, it's the same kind of issue. We need more electricity upstream if we're not actually using it downstream, if we're converting it into hydrogen, moving that hydrogen around, and then ultimately converting it back into electricity in some fuel cell or electric motor. So yeah, it's, uh, it's, it's just essential that we expand the amount of electricity supply and that we make all of it clean from here on out. Give a presentation on hydrogen last week, and I didn't get that right. It bothered me for quite some time now. Yeah, I, I expect a, a more sophisticated answer from the Princeton, Princeton professor than just the hydrogen. Of course, all the yeah. a, the answer to every question seems to be hydrogen at this point. That's, that's, yeah. that's I want to push you a little bit on the second half of math. Yeah, I was going to say it's just going to be the same uh, question about an RTO. Yeah, because we're you know the the Northwest is you know very uh, lots of BAs. Um, yep. We a lot of it's a bilateral market still sim similar to the Southeast. What's your thoughts on the need? Like, specifically, like is it needed in order to adopt yeah. and electrify this br huge of uh, 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 increase in, in electric consumption? I ultimately think it is necessary to have a regional scale organization that does the same things that an RTO does, right? Whether that is an RTO or those functions divvied out on two or three different entities, right? Because you think about what does an RTO do, right? Well, it runs short-term energy balancing markets. Okay, well, you already are getting that with the Western energy imbalance market. And you just see in the inexorable creep of the boundaries of that market that it just makes total sense to have one balancing market for the whole West, not 55 or 62 or however many there were before that. Um, so that makes total sense. And then, you know, as uh, my old uh, mentor, Bill Hogan at, at Harvard always, you know, noted, you got to get the short-term price signals right first because everything else follows from that. And so my, my prediction is that once you, you know, you have established, well-established a region-wide energy imbalance market, well, it only makes sense to start defining forward contracts and day ahead, you know, contracts and things that settle against that, that real time price, because that's how everybody else in the world does it, right? Having bilateral contracts just have very high transaction costs. And so once you have a good, transparent, public, you know, market signal to settle contracts against, it just makes sense to start having um, a multilateral standard futures contracts, aka a day ahead electricity market. Um, or month ahead or week ahead, whatever else. Um, so I think, you know, again, like maybe that is run by some third party, you know, power exchange like it is in Europe, right? The TSOs in Europe don't run those markets. There's a separate just like stock market, basically. Um, but it's going to happen, I think, um, because it's just better. It's more efficient. And then the big one, the one I think is indispensable is the planning function, because Yes, we need to balance renewables from all over the country, all over the WEC in the short run to manage everything efficiently. But we also have to plan at that large scale as well, because we have to be expanding transmission at a regional scale. We have to be siting hundreds of gigawatts of wind and solar across the region. And so what you do in one state affects what the other states need to do as well, right, in, in both positive and, and potentially negative ways, right? If I say, well, I'm not going to develop my wind or solar resource because I don't want to see the wind turbines, but I want to get the power from somewhere else. Now you've got more demand for that region to produce the, the wind and maybe there's not enough of it. And so there's just so many trade-offs at a regional scale on the planning side, someone has to manage that efficiently. Um, and so whether that's again, some kind of, you know, very well empowered regional, you know, stakeholder planning process that, you know, all the governors and regulators in, are involved in, or it's an actual RTO that plays that role. Um, it just makes sense, I think, to do that, not just across the Northwest, but really across the whole Western interconnect. Follow-up question, if I may. Awesome answer. Um, 
uh, let's start with that. That wasn't a question. Um, <laughs> we were talking about public power earlier. Um, in, in getting there, as you said, um, uh, with the many alternatives that you kind of outlined there, do you see public power as being uh, as being a hurdle to that process, uh, given the, the structure of local control? In some ways, yeah, because it does run against the instincts of, you know, sort of your own sovereignty, right? It, it, yep. It's, you know, it's... I, <laughs> I'm thinking a lot about Europe lately for obvious reasons. So it's a little bit like the European Union, right? In order to strengthen your own sovereignty in some ways, you have to give some of it up, right? In order to get the outcomes that you know you want and your, your local population wants and needs, which is an efficient, low carbon, reliable electricity system, you actually have to take part in a global, you know, or a WEC wide governance structure that at that level dilutes your sovereignty a little bit, right? And um, that's a ten, you know, there's sort of an immediate apparent tension there. But I do think it is, you know, maybe securitously like the best way to actually deliver on what your customers want. Um, and, and it's especially for public power. In many cases, there are such there's so much smaller utilities, you know, with without large transmission systems to rely on on their own. You know, the only way you're going to benefit from the regional nature of, uh, a, you know, an efficient, reliable, low carbon energy system is to participate in something like that. Um, so, yeah, I, I think it's a challenge because it does go against the cultural mindset, the governance mindset of public utilities, many of them anyway. Um, but in the long run, I do think it's important. Um, and, you know, like the EU, the best way to strengthen your own little province is to give up some of that sovereignty to a, a larger entity. That isn't to, you know, to, to uh, underestimate all of the challenges that go into developing a governance structure that makes everybody happy, which I think is the central challenge there. Um, but I do think it's worth it's worth tackling um, and the benefits are huge. Jesse, Thank your you. approach to that answer is uh, actually very uh, similar to the way you were answering the inter intermission questions with parametric <laughs> uncertainty and structural error. I guess it depends, huh? Yeah. Um, yeah. yeah, yeah. So, well, thank you for that um, thoughtful response on the role that RTOs could play. Um, and certainly in the Northwest, you know, we have within California, a Western uh, energy imbalance market and uh, Kaiso is undertaking the day ahead market proposals. Yep. And yep. concurrently SP market plus is happening at the same time. So there's um, the timing of this discussion is really spot on. Yeah, um, yeah. I've been thinking that Jesse, in the last 15 years since, you know, our energy policy course and when you were at Renewable Northwest, it seems to me that your approach to energy transition and decarbonization has become more nuanced. Um, and yeah. so I was wondering if you could speak to the evolution in your thinking about energy transition and decarbonization for the electric sector. Um, my recollection is initially at that time, you know, you were really focused on like flood the electric sector with renewable resources, uh, with non-synchronous resources. Um, and it seems now with the work that I've seen more recently, it's much more of a portfolio approach in the sense that you're um, balancing fuel saving resources like wind and solar with fast burst resources, and that there's also a need for flexible base resources such as nuclear or storage hydro. Um, 
How has that come about for you? Could you give us some visibility into that? Yeah, I think that's that's very that's a great observation. And and I you know the two things I would say have have led to that primarily. One is I've been incredibly fortunate to get to spend my time studying this big complex question for 15 years. And hopefully if I'm doing that well, I'm understanding the complexities more and more. And that necessarily leads to, you know, the need for more nuance because it is a huge, complicated, you know, not simple problem. And so the solutions can't be simple either. Um, The other thing that's changed a lot is just where we were in the development of the industry and the technology. So, you know, if you go back to you know, 2006, 2008, you know, it, it, we passed the Oregon Renewable Energy Act in 2007, right? So 15 years ago, you know, at that point, wind and solar were still expensive alternative energy technologies, right? That was the term of the day, alternative energy. And, you know, if you were going to get a, you know, my recollection is if you could get a wind PPA for $100 a megawatt hour, that was a steal, yeah. you know, like, great, go get it, do it, do it as much as you can. Uh, and solar just wasn't even really on the radar in the Northwest. It just, you know, it wasn't sunny enough. It, you know, the sunnier east was too far in terms of transmission. Wind was cheaper. So why, why even really bother with, with solar in the region? You know, flash forward to now, and, you know, we've seen a 90 plus percent decline in the cost of solar, a two thirds decline in the cost of wind. Um, and these are now, you know, $30 a megawatt hour or something like that for, you know, PPA. So just dramatically lower costs. Um, and they're now the, the bulk of new capacity additions. They're the cheapest mainstream option. So it's not alternative expensive energy anymore. And, and so part of that is, you know, part of my view on this has been, you know, we did the job correctly then with wind and solar by creating niche markets through voluntary public power programs, right? Like we have, which, you know, the Northwest has been really strong in um, at both the public and private utility level. Um, And through policies like the renewable portfolio standards, local tax credits, the federal tax credits, which created the market demand for these technologies, uh, along with much of the rest of the world, right? It's not a US only story. You know, Germany and Italy and Spain were contributing to subsidies. China was ramping up the supply side. But collectively as as humanity, we invested in these technologies and in deploying them when they were expensive to make them cheap. And we succeeded in doing that. And so it provides me a mental model of what success looks like for other challenges that we face. And so I approach a lot of my research now by basically saying, look, wind and solar kind of have it on lock. They're, they're there. We did it. Batteries as well now, right? Lithium ion batteries are also 90% cheaper than they were decade ago. And you look at what's happening in the electric vehicle market, and it's just like, we've gone over the tipping point, right? It will be electric now. The future is electric. The question is just how quickly do we get there? Because the technology is just better now. Um, And so that's my mental model for what success looks like. And so what then I do is I go look at, well, how far can we get with wind, solar and batteries? And the answer is pretty far, but not to 100% carbon free electricity. Um, And so, you know, you see in a lot of these studies that the you know, more and more wind and solar we deploy. Initially, they're very valuable because they displace the most expensive fuel consuming resource on the margin at whatever hour they're generating, right? They're free when they're there. So they come in on the bottom of the supply curve, they push out of the top of the stack, your old and efficient coal plant or gas plant, whatever's the most expensive. And that's why I call them fuel saving resources because primarily that's their value add is they're free when you got them and you don't need to consume the fuel and all the very expensive costs and emissions that go with that. But as we deploy more and more wind and solar, their output is concentrated in the same hours when it's really windy or it's really sunny. And so you more rapidly reduce uh, use of fossil fuels in those hours than you do on average across the rest of the year. 
Um, and so eventually you get to a point where, like we see in parts of you know the West right now, where in the spring months in off-peak seasons, like solar is getting curtailed all over the region, or you know, BP, uh, Bonneville power is is spilling hydro because we've got too much wind and hydro together. And in those hours, you know, more wind and solar is literally worthless, right? It has zero market value um, and zero emissions reduction value. And so, you know, it's not a knock on renewables. They're going to be stars of the low carbon team, and they're going to probably provide the bulk, you I know, mean, the majority of our electricity by 2050. But expecting one or two energy resources to do everything, you know, your star point guard to also get all of your your uh, rebounds and to to be your outside shooting guard and all that, like, it's just not a great way to go. <laughs> you know, so you, you need you, other non glamorous athletes on yes, the team to get out there and have the big center up there. You know, <laughs> catch the rebound and, and kick it out to your point guard. So seems um, like you're yeah. uh, very familiar with these sports analogies. You want to talk <laughs> more about sports? Uh, very good. Uh, this oh, one, that, I did I, go to the University of Oregon when we were decent at basketball, so I, I, you know, I, I got some basketball analogies for you. That's another Dave Roberts uh, clapback, though, from uh, an exchange this morning, if, if, or maybe last night. I don't know. Twitter is Twitter isn't real, and neither is time. Time these is days, a loop. Right? Yeah. yeah, but the 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 analogy of uh, of of solar and wind being the you know the, the star player as yep. opposed to the only player, I think, is fantastic, yep. um, as as you noted. Yeah, because it's a tricky one, you know, to try to point out the limitations of a technology without coming out as if you're anti wind or solar. I, I mean, I'm the only industry I've ever been paid to advocate for is the renewable energy industry. So <laughs> I am very much uh, pro renewables. Um, but, you know, so my, my view now reflects, OK, so wind and solar and batteries are, are there. Batteries provide a lot of short term variability and flexibility within a day. And what that leaves is a big gap, which is the periods of time when there's just not a lot of wind and solar across much of the region for a prolonged period of time. The Germans have words for everything, right? Because you just take two words and glom them together and then maybe if you need more, you add another word and you just get these really long words. So their word for this is the Dunkelflaute or dark doldrums, um, which are periods when it's not windy and it's not sunny. Um, and, and these can last for days or weeks across, a con you know, across the WEC you know, size region. Um, and, and in those periods of time, we need a technology that can sustain output for as long as we need it, whenever we need it. And I, I call those firm technologies. And ideally, what we need is firm low carbon technologies to replace natural gas and coal, which are the firm technologies we rely on today. Um, and so, you know, that that's our remaining innovation challenge in many ways for the next decade is to repeat the success that we had with wind, solar and lithium ion batteries with one or more, ideally several, uh, firm low carbon technology options, which could be advanced nuclear, advanced geothermal, uh, carbon capture with natural gas plants. Um, it could be uh, you know, zero carbon hydrogen produced from clean sources um, that's burned in combustion turbines or fuel cells. Um, it, and it potentially could be very long duration, very cheap energy storage. But I've, I've done some research on that as well. And it, it's not a it's not a great immediate substitute um, unless it's extremely cheap, like think uh, two orders of magnitude cheaper than a lithium ion battery in terms of the, the dollars per kilowatt hour. Um, otherwise, it plays more of an intermediate role where it displaces some firm and some flexible and kind of sits in between. But, you know, those are the technologies that are less mature than we want them to be today. They're more costly. And they're in that early stage where they look like expensive alternatives that it's very easy to just say, yeah, forget that. Why would I want to invest in that expensive technology when I have wind and solar? And if we had answered that question the same way in 2007, when it was wind and solar that we were asking that question about, we would not be where we are today and we would not have those star players on the court. 
So the challenge is to repeat that success and make uh, the firm low carbon technologies cheap over the next decade. We can rely on gas in the interim to play that role, just use the capacity and burn less gas over time. Uh, and you know, with, displace it with fuel saving wind and solar. But to get all the way to 100% carbon free cost effectively, we need to be proactively developing firm low carbon technologies to be ready in the 2030s and 2040s to step in and fill out the rest of the team. Yeah, I, I think that's incredibly helpful answer and framing. I mean, in the Pacific Northwest, we have these wonderful hydro resources, right? Yep. That do some of that capability. They that, do do some of that, yeah. But yeah. there's only so much of it, right? We have sort of a limited only- amount of, you know, Hydro, and as so. you think, as, as we talked about earlier, where we're going to ex- be expanding electrification, exactly. I think you said we're doubling. Like yeah, we exactly. may need to add resources to supplement this wonderful resource we yep. already have. In the yeah, and, and it does, you know, the hydro base provides a really good foundation to grow from. Um, you know, just like much of the Northeast and, you know, and Mid-Atlantic has a lot of nuclear as yeah. a kind of existing foundation to build on and add more low carbon technologies to. But both of those have their limits to how far we can go with the existing stuff. And yeah, if electricity demand is going to more than double, peak demand is going to grow in the winter in particular if we electrify heating, you know, so that limits the role of solar at those, in those months. Um, we need more firm capacity uh, than we can get out of the existing hydro system. Um, and we can't rely on gas in the long run to do that. So the answer is firm low carbon technologies. I don't think we can ask three more questions. I don't think we can ask three more questions either. Yeah. Um, Let's go to kids. And then, we only have uh, two. Want... Yeah, you got to talk know, about I... modeling. You want to okay. do kids first and then modeling? Well, I want to ask about merch too. <laughs> I, I'm not cutting merch. <laughs> I love merch. leaving that in. We're not cutting merch. Uh, kids are modeling. What do you want to talk about, Jesse? Kids are modeling. Either. Yeah, I don't care. <laughs> kids. Let's talk about kids. Let's talk right. about kids. Go for it, Matt. Uh, Jesse, uh, you, you mentioned earlier you've got a you've got a four year old son uh, in our house. Uh, I do as well in our house. It's not uh, trains so much as uh, uh, I guess uh, what what are now known as fossil fuels or dinosaurs. Um, <laughs> all the dinosaurs, all dinosaurs, yep. all the time. Um, uh, Paul Paul also has young kids. My I've got a, a daughter that's that's one and a half. So as, as we noted, two under five. Um, at the same time, you're really plugged in. Uh, as we've realized today, uh, experience today, or thoughtful, considerate in your approach to addressing many issues facing the world today, climate change, um, you know, all the way from that to, to what's going on in Ukraine, for example. Uh, and yet you seem relentlessly positive. Um, it's, it's inspiring. It's, a, it's, it's a nearly Ted Lasso-esque in its consistency <laughs> and reach, uh, in, in my experience. Um, and so uh, given this relatively unique opportunity that, I'm, that, that I have here, I, I, ha- I have to ask how how do you maintain such a positive outlook and dear god could you please teach me (laughs) uh let me try yeah um yeah look it's 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 hard i mean you know you're all in the northwest my family's all there so you know when when half of the west is on fire every summer now and you know my dad can't leave his house for days at a time because it's just not safe for him to breathe the air it's hard to be positive right you look at that and you say jesus we've we failed, right? Um, and and on many ways, I think it's fair to say we, we have. I mean, if you go back to the original uh, UN climate summit, the goal that the global community came together to accomplish was to prevent, quote, dangerous climate change. And we've clearly failed to do that, right? The danger is here, the harms are here. Um, and, and that's I'm terrible. I'm not feeling any right? better. So yet, this, is, this is not the positive part, right? <laughs> Um, but the, the positive part is we can still make a huge difference and 
we are, right? It, we are winning in some ways, right? We're not winning fast enough, and that's terrible. Um, and some of that is previous generations, you know, responsibility. Some of that is us maybe not working, you know, as successfully as, or as effectively as we could. But, you know, we are making uh, progress. We are grabbing hold of a bunch of different levers and we are yanking as hard as we can and we are moving uh, the needle. And, and so, again, you know, we talked about how far wind and solar have come in 15 years or how far electric vehicles are come. You know, that's you know, maybe together, just those two successes is like half of the problem, <laughs> right? And and so if we have basically, you know, it's still a long way to go to get the infrastructure, do the deployment, all the work, but if we have more or less have line of sight on half of the problem now. And that's just to ha happen within my 15 years of working in this sector. And where I feel like I and others like you have contributed in very tangible ways over that time to moving those solutions forward. That's where I derive my optimism from, because I think we can win. We can we can transition cost effectively and successfully um, to a clean energy system uh, that is just better for society, right? It's not just that it solves climate change, but the public health benefits from reduced air pollution are reduced dependence on the whims of a global commodity like oil and the ability of one crazed dictator to, you know, affect everyone in the world. Sorry, it's, uh, it's hard to talk about. <laughs> um, you know, we have to end that. We have to get off of those uh, those fuels. And so there's just so many reasons to move the energy transition forward that um, and more and more people seeing that and getting on board with that every, you know, and, and pushing. We, you know, I, my uh, one of my academic colleagues, Roger Pilkey, Jr. at University of Colorado or Colorado State, the political scientist, he he likes to remind us that our, the job of politics and therefore political advocacy is not to get everyone to do the, to think alike. It's to get them to do this, to act alike, right? And we don't have to have the same motivations to want to proceed, proceed with an energy transition. Um, and since there are a lot of reasons why we can all see a benefit here, there are a lot of ways to make progress. So again, you know, coming back to successes, I remember, you know, going to Salem to try to advocate for the um, the Oregon Renewable Energy Act in 2007, the first RPS in the state, and. You know, everybody from the Willamette Valley, basically all the reps from the Willamette Valley were already on board. And so we didn't really need to convince them the benefits of tackling climate change and building out renewable energy. It was the rest of the reps from the coastal and southern, you know, eastern portions of the state, which tend to be more conservative and uh, different priorities. And so the thing that flipped the politics on that, you know, the kinds of advocacy that flipped it, and it made it a two thirds bipartisan majority when it passed, was the sheriff from Sherman County, you know, coming in and saying, you know, we used to not have 24-7 uh, dispatch service because we couldn't afford to have somebody answer the phones. And we only had one sheriff's deputy. And now we have 24-hour service. We've got three new deputies. We've got a brand new you know, car. Uh, our schools are gold-plated. <laughs> you know, we have, our, we have some of the, you know, the, the best property tax base in the country now. Um, you know, farmers coming in and saying, you know, I thought I wasn't going to be able to pass on my farm to my kids. Um, and now saying, you know, I've got this new steady revenue stream from, you know, wind and leases on that. And, and all of a sudden people's eyes open to all the benefits of this kind of transition. And so, you know, I, I guess I've seen enough examples of making progress in the time that we've been working at this, that it motivates me to get up every day and grab the biggest lever that I can and try to keep, you know, accelerating that, that, that flywheel and, you know, keep making faster and faster progress. 
Well, thank you for pulling the lever. One of the levers is electric utilities like us. We are electric utility enthusiasts. I hope you are too. <laughs> of course. Um, uh, I We're going to have Public Power Underground merch. And one of the merch we're going to have is electric for electric utility enthusiasts. Think about whether you want some electric utility enthusiast merch. Um, when you were on the Volts podcast with David Roberts, um, you talked about how uh, you, uh, the academics will translate some of their research or models into algebraic expressions. Um, and it, it got me thinking when I was first training a new employee, we have Luigi Jaline. Um, uh, I was trying to explain to her the basic fundamentals of power planning. And I came up with my own axiom. And so what I'm going to ask you to do today is much like what Jasper asked Xavier to do on the hit TV series, The After Party on Apple TV Plus. I'm asking you to uh, bless my track and uh, specifically bless my axiom. OK, so the central axiom uh, is the sum of power supply equals the sum of load. Uh, yes. Really beautifully depicted on some merch. Uh, is this a good axiom for power, for public power for electric it's, utility enthusiasts? It's like us? the central constraint uh, in in our model. So the demand balance constraint is the central constraint in every one of our electricity system models too. Supply has to okay. equal demand in every hour, every minute, uh, all the time. That is the, um, yeah, that is the constraint. It's wonderful. Okay. I saw so the picture graphs you made. Those are those are excellent. It's very succinct. It's you should see the the five lines of code it takes to write our demand balance constraint. So I think you've done a great job of. Uh, <laughs> Thank you very much. I will. Uh, I'd be proud to wear one. It's it's excellent. Yes, I will include your. I, heard it. Uh, I will include this in all of our advertising <laughs> yeah. for the merch. Endorsed I hope you by. Will <laughs> I would be proud to wear one. Jesse hiring yeah. one. Yes, I won't have uh, approved by Jesse Jenkins. It's too late. I already designed the merch. It's already coming. Everyone, the merch is coming. Uh, I'm very excited. Thank you so You've much. Been hearing for that for months, here, Jesse. Jesse. By the way, <laughs> eventually. <they'll come. laughs> this has been very hopeful, and, and I do think, hey, we can be successful. I am always like empowered by the incredibly brilliant people I interact with at Electric Utilities and uh, my peers. I think that we are earnestly trying to tackle this together. I appreciate your voice in trying to tackle this incredibly important challenge. I think my hopeful message to my children and to the children of, of those engaging in this is we're trying. Like that's the message, right, Jesse? Yeah. We're trying, kids. Yep. We're doing everything we can. We get up every yep. day. We understand and we're trying. It's a message of hope. It's a message yep. of hope. We're trying and, and again we are succeeding. We're moving yeah. we're moving this giant system in a new direction. And that is not a trivial thing to do at all. And it's gonna take a generation's work and probably beyond that. So our kids can pick up the torch from us in uh, in twenty years and, and carry it on forward. Flashlight by then. Let's electrify those too. Right. All right. <laughs> Sincerely appreciate your responses. Um, uh, your engagement, your willingness to to uh, stand here. I was going to say sit down with us, but yeah. Anyway, thank you very much for your time and engagement. Um, thank you. Uh, everything that was mentioned that can be put in the show notes will be linked in the show notes. Um, and uh, sincerely hope you enjoyed yourself. Uh, we did. This was fun. All right. Uh, look forward to having you on again soon. Sounds good. Thanks. Thank you.
Thanks to Jesse, Humira, and Matt for the informative conversation. To make sure you don't miss the next episode uh, or other great bonus content, including maybe a link to the merch uh, of how to buy this fantastic merch, you can sign up to an un- for an unintrusive newsletter with links to all the all the ways to consume our fascinating content at publicpowerunderground.substack.com. That's right, Public Power Underground has a substack. Um, You can also find our content on YouTube, Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or your favorite podcast app. You don't have to be subscribed to News Data to get this podcast, but it sure makes our podcast make a lot more sense. That's all for this week. Thanks for tuning in. Public Power Underground is a production of Klotzkine IPUD and News Data. The views expressed here are own and not the official views of Klotzkine IPUD, News Data, or the organization of the guests also appearing on Public Power Underground. Public Power Underground is public power and public power adjacent news from a power department's perspective. It's written and directed by Klotzkine IPUD's power department, led by me, Paul Dockery, and it's edited and published by the stellar team at Pioneer Utility Resources, led by associate producer Sarah Wooden. Our theme song, Roll On Enthusiasts, was rewritten, performed, and recorded by Aaron Guillory and Ian Bledsoe. Public Power Underground for electric utility. Utility enthusiasts, Public Power Underground, it's work to watch. <laughs>